Welcome back to another episode of the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. Now, as the walls of the city of Jerusalem continue to rise, that is going to walk us through Satan's attempt to discourage and detract the people of Judea. Now, thinking back to the last episode, episode 10 of the Nehemiah series, which was all about the cooperative co-laboring of the Judean people and how this co-laboring made them stronger together. Let's follow along today and see how the people of Judea reacted to the attacks of the evil one. Likewise, let's learn how we can react to similar attacks in our lives from Satan and how we can lean on our fellow believers to overcome these attacks. Now let's go ahead and let Pastor Harris continue to teach us in the 11th installment of the Nehemiah series titled, Satan's Greatest Weapons. Now, as the walls of Jerusalem began to rise from the rubble, Jerusalem's enemies began to panic. And that was especially true of Sanballat and Tobiah, the former, former governors of Judea. Nehemiah himself describes their vile reactions to the raising of these walls. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says this, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He was angry. He was angry. Do you get it? He was angry and felt great indignation. So what did he do? And he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heap of rubbish, seeing they are burned? Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall break down their stone wall. Well, (laughs) oh my goodness, Sambalat, Tobiah, what rotten characters they were. And in these three verses, these two men reveal their unfeigned willingness to oppose both God's will and God's people. And such violent opposition to God's purpose can only be orchestrated from one source. We know that to be true. And that source is Satan, the enemy of God and the enemy of God's chosen people. Now, a spiritually blinded Sanballat and a spiritually blinded Tobiah would willingly allow Satan to use them as instruments of evil. That's always the case when people are in a state of spiritual blindness. And nowhere, nowhere, beloved, can Satan's tactics be more clearly defined than in the attitudes and action of these two wicked governors. Here we see hell's unchanging war plan in its fullest operation. The deadly plotting of Sanballat and Tobiah reflects the same combat strategy that Satan has employed against the people of God from the very beginning of creation. You see, these satanically inspired battle tactics involve the deployment of two awful weapons, both of which are calculated to reduce the citizens of Jerusalem to nothingness. You know what the weapons were? I just read you about them. The weapons were ridicule and discouragement. There you have it. I mean, those are two of Satan's most powerful weapons, ridicule and discouragement. Now, the book of Nehemiah clearly illustrates the way in which Sanballat and Tobiah initiated their attacks. 
He states that they both mocked the Jews. That's how Sanballat and Tobiah initiated their attack. They mocked the Jews. Why? Well, they hoped that the morale of the wall builders would be broken. You see, these mocking words were only one reflection of the inner fury and the inner indignance of these two vile men. They stood there watching the rebuilding efforts of the Judeans and nothing but fury emanated from them. Fury had been generated by their personal knowledge of the fact that their personal power was waning with each new stone. Every stone that went into Jerusalem's wall meant that they were less strong than they had been before. So as their power base shrank, their verbal attacks escalated. Now, beloved, let me let you believers in on a little secret. Satan reacts to our efforts at rebuilding our lives in a very similar manner. The closer any of us come to spiritual victory, the more noise Satan's going to make. The closer we come to the total restoration of our once ruined lives, the louder his taunts will become. Now, unfortunately, we often forget this fact. And we begin to crumble beneath the pressures of his verbal assaults. And sometimes we do that, beloved, at the very moment when our victory is virtually in our grasp. Now, if the attack, attacks of the enemy do tend to become more radical as we come closer to victory, as I've suggested, then the true church of Jesus Christ must be on the very threshold of total victory in its 2,000-year struggle against Satan. With the possible exception of its first two centuries of existence, The church has never, beloved, never been attacked more violently than it has in the last 20 years. Almost everyone today seems to be furious and indignant with the church. And one of the evidences of the world's fury is its unfeigned use of the weapon of ridicule. You know, the world constantly stands at the doorstep of the church, reminding us of how weak and ineffective we have become. But beloved, this is none other than Satan's work. You can turn on the television every night and see the Church of Jesus Christ being thrashed on the national news networks. What's Satan trying to do through the media? He's trying to discourage us just as Sanballat tried to discourage the Jews. Remember how Sanballat referred to the Judeans as being feeble? Well, he wasn't lying. He actually saw them as being feeble. That's how Satan saw the Jews, and therefore that's how Sanballat saw them. In the same way, beloved, the modern world regards the church today as a weak, powerless entity. In the eyes of the world, the political, social, and moral cloud of the church is gone. And as I said a moment ago, this attitude can be seen most clearly in the mass media where Christians are almost always portrayed in a negative light. Christians are typecast as either intolerant bigots or as venomous hypocrites. You know, (laughs) the media would never dare to depict any other religious, ethnic, or social group in such a light. See, these other groups are perceived as having real social and political clout. So the media moguls cater to them. And since the church today 
has so little political or social strength. It's scorned and verbally abused night after night on your television set. Now, beloved, I warn you, we in the church must never allow ourselves to become discouraged by this continuous assault. In fact, these attacks should only generate great hope in us. This torrent of opposition we face seems to suggest that this present age of darkness is even now drawing to a close. The cosmic Sanballat, who has ruled this present age since the day when Adam first fell into sin, has suddenly begun to feel his ancient authority slipping away from him, and this enrages him. He is filled with anger. He is filled with great indignation. As John the Revelator wrote, for the, re- for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath, for he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Oh, beloved, even though this prophesied end has not yet come, can we doubt for even a moment that Satan's activities have drastically increased in these days? Certainly his level of violence is not intensive as it will be at the end of the age, but he's here just the same. Anyone with eyes can see that evil is increasing across this planet in meteoric proportions. Crime, drug abuse, child abuse, poverty, and ecological ecological destruction are all escalating moment by moment. In response, civil governments across the globe are attempting to combat this growing darkness by instituting a myriad of social programs and by spending countless trillions of dollars. But the problems continue to grow moment by moment. They are not lessening. They are increasing. Why? Why? Well, my friends, this hostility centers around Satan's knowledge that Jesus Christ will soon confine him to eternal hell. Therefore, He fears both Christ and his ever more powerful church. It is Satan's fear that causes him to ridicule and mock the church. And by such tactics as these, he hopes to intimidate and he hopes to shame God's people, people like you and me, and interrupt our redemptive efforts. Thank God, thank God, his efforts are not succeeding today. The true church has ceased to be ashamed or intimidated by Satan. It recognizes that with each passing day, the church is coming closer and closer to its ultimate victory, and the assault on it only approves it. We twice-born saints of God can count on the fact that Satan never has a good day anymore. (laughs) He knows God's word. So he knows who is going to win this eternal struggle for the dominion of this world. However, he's not allowed this knowledge to deter him. It's only served to make him more angry and more indignant. You know, I've often found over these 64 or so years that I've lived that defeated adversaries often react in anger. Occasionally, a boxer who knows that he is hopelessly behind on points, will throw caution to the wind and flail at his opponent, hoping hoping to land just one last vicious knockout blow. Now, as you know, this tactic does not work. And 
99.99% of the time, the flailing fighter hits nothing but air and leaves the ring in defeat and despair. Well, Satan has reacted in just that manner in these closing days of the present age. You know, as I survey the world's situation in our time, I see signs, beloved. I see signs that God's true church has suddenly begun to sense its pending victory. We're beginning to see ourselves as being more than conquerors. Satan's taunts no longer impress us like they once did. Meanwhile, Satan and his minions, beloved, are growing more and more frustrated as our walls of divine protection climb higher and higher. Therefore, the only recourse our enemy has left to us is to stand outside our new walls and mock them. (laughs) Oh, and he's good at it. He's good at it. He tells us that our walls will never stand if they're attacked. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. In spite of what he says, he is fully aware that all of his words aimed at us are no more than lies. Our walls are not weak. They have been built with the assistance of God's Holy Spirit so we can simply ignore these venomous taunts. They are only another aspect of his long, outdated battle strategy. Now, both Sanballat and Tobiah, granted, attempted to use that same strategy. While Sanballat scoffed at the stones the builders were using, Tobiah mockingly shouted, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall break down their stone walls. But by now, we should all recognize that this taunt only reflected the weakness which Tobiah saw within himself. It reflected his personal recognition of his own loss of power. Now, Sanballat appears to have personally approached the ever-rising wall line on several occasions to heap ridicule upon its builders. In fact, you know, according to the text, on these occasions when he appeared, he would always do one thing. He would remind the workers that most of the stones they were using in their wall had been thoroughly burned in the fiery inferno back in 587 B.C., And he offered these reminders because he knew that stones that have been burned grow brittle. Stones that have been burned calcinate. Yeah, they grow brittle. And they tend to crumble when they are battered by a ram. He intended to make them believe that the first invaders who assaulted this wall would knock Jerusalem's new wall to the ground. It could not stand because it was calcinated stone. Now, just like these ancient stones of Jerusalem, beloved, many of us have also been through some awesome fires in our lives, haven't we? I know I have. The stones of our walls, our basic blocks of life, have also been calcinated by our fiery trials. Therefore, we have become brittle and easily crushed. Oh, beloved, but here's the good news. In spite of all the fiery trials you've faced, in in spite of all of the fires that you've been through, within us is a divine presence who tells us that he has already defeated all those foes that occasionally arise against us. And this divine presence within us will always be available at a moment's notice to reinforce our walls so that we can continue to stand with confidence no matter how brittle we may be. Now, Sanballat's hope for success in this last-ditch effort 
was based on three serious miscalculations. In the first place, he erroneously believed that the enormity of the task, the construction of almost two miles of walls, would be far too difficult for such ordinary people as these, especially people with little or no building skills. So he asked, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Now, this verse actually proves to me that Sanballat had actually convinced himself that the Jews were far too weak to complete this enormous task. But you know something? You know something? He was wrong with a capital W. He was dead wrong. And in the second place, Sanballat erroneously assumed that the Jews would not make the prolonged physical, financial, and emotional sacrifices necessary to complete such a costly job. That is why he asked, will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Now, clearly, beloved, Sanballat had seriously underestimated the resolve of these Judeans. But perhaps Sanballat's greatest miscalculation was his underestimation of the role that Nehemiah and the imperial guard, which had come to Jerusalem with him, would play in the ever-increasing resolve of those Judean people. The Judeans had come to believe that there was nothing they could not do with Nehemiah and his captains at their side. And since they had royal assistance, they were certain, absolutely certain of their success. <laughs> it was such inner confidence. No sacrifice would prove to be too great for them. And as a result, Sanballat's taunts fell on deaf ears. Now, my friends, a number of important lessons can be learned from this Judean experience with a mocking army. For one thing, those of us who are children of God should never, now let me put emphasis on the word never, never allow Satan to remind us of our weaknesses. Don't you do it. Don't allow him to remind you of your weaknesses. What Satan is actually doing when he reminds God's people of their faults and failures is this. He is expressing his own concerns over his loss of authority over the lives of those people. Now, that's the first lesson I want you to learn. Don't you ever allow Satan to remind you of your weaknesses. And lesson two is just as poignant. It proves that when the heavenly Nehemiah abides in a regenerated human spirit, God himself commits his own divine resources to that person's situation in life. And whenever, beloved, our God is aligned with us, then Satan's taunts mean absolutely nothing. We can say to our enemy, I may be weak in myself, my wall's may be made of calcinated, porous stones, but I am not alone behind my walls. God's own Holy Spirit, the very righteousness of God himself, stands within these walls, within me, and he has already defeated you in my behalf. Greater is he who is in me than he is in the world. See, that, that's lesson two. See, when, when, when the Holy Spirit abides in you, you become a force of one. Now, the Christian believer also has one other powerful source of action when confronted with a powerful enemy, as Nehemiah is going to prove to us. You see, when Sanballat's taunts reached their height, Nehemiah did exactly what the Holy Spirit does in behalf of all believers when they're assailed. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He prays. He prays through those believers. See, I mean, that, that, that's essential. You've got to understand that. When, when, when 
the the satanic attacks reach their worst, the Holy Spirit does his best. He prays in behalf of all of us. Now, I want you to be aware that Nehemiah did not pray in the same way that the Holy Spirit prays when he intercedes for us. In fact, Nehemiah's prayer was quite primitive. It was a reflection of his Hebrew ethic, which demanded an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, listen to Nehemiah's petition to God in behalf of his people. He, he cries out, Hear, O God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have proved provoked thee to anger before the builders. Now let me read it again. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Now, who's despising them? Sanballat and Tobiah and all of their henchmen. And he asked, then Nehemiah asked God to turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. In other words, he's saying, God, lead them away, lead them away to captivity. Cover not their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Now, naturally, we Christians must never consider praying a prayer of this nature. And we must not allow such a prayer to be a pattern for our own prayer life. You see, when Christ came to this earth, he taught his people a new, more divinely acceptable way to pray, especially when faced with outside opposition. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us that prayer to overcome external opposition will never be effective unless four steps are taken, each of which are diametrically opposed opposed to the tenor of the prayer of Nehemiah. Now listen, before Jesus initiated this new teaching on prayer, he first reviewed the ethics of the Old Testament. He said, "Ye have heard it, you have heard that it has been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies." Now Jesus affirms that that the old ethical position had outlived its time. That he would offer the world a much better ethic that would undergird the more effective way of praying that he would introduce. So, in comparison to these words, you have heard it said, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemies. Jesus says this, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, these verses... Reveal to me, beloved, and I want to share with them, them with you the four attitudes and actions that are essential to a successful prayer life, especially when dealing with the kind of resistance Nehemiah was facing. You see, rather than praying for the demise of our enemies, we who are Christians, according to our Lord, are to do this. One, love our enemies. Two, bless our enemies. Three, do good for our enemies. Four, pray for our enemies. See, all of these steps imply a note of forgiveness directed toward those who oppose us. You see, prayer that is effective will always have a note of forgiveness in it. In Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24, Jesus tells us how through prayer we can remove the mountains from our lives. First, he says that we must speak aloud to the mountain. Secondly, we must reject all doubt and unbelief. And finally, we must believe that the mountain has been removed at the moment we pray. Believe that ye shall receive. Believe that ye receive 
is in the aorist or past tense. So that mountain was removed when we prayed. And then Jesus goes on to say, ye shall, future tense, have it. Now, then Jesus says this, and when ye stand praying, do what? See, if Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24 is to work for you, what must you do? When you stand praying, forgive. Now, just imagine what Nehemiah could have accomplished if he had only known the keys that Jesus would one day reveal. Fortunately, God did not hold Nehemiah responsible for what he did not know. See, that, that's, that's the key here. God simply took Nehemiah where he was with what he knew and honored his faithfulness. Now, beloved, remember, first and foremost, our God is a God of grace, taking us as we are and shaping us into what we can become. Now, you know, I, for one, can relate to Nehemiah's feelings when he prayed the prayer he did. It's one thing to be ridiculed yourself, but when that ridicule is extended toward those you love, it becomes a source of anger and vengeance. But I must say that to Nehemiah's credit, he did not internalize these feelings. Instead, he took these feelings to God and asked God to interpose for him and his people. Those were the steps in the right direction, beloved. Anger and wrath, now listen to pastor, when they are internalized can become a cancer in our soul that will destroy us. Nehemiah refused to entertain that cancer. And he took those feelings and he dumped them at the feet of God. And with that task completed, Nehemiah could continue with the project. He states in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half of its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, beloved, in the Hebrew tongue, the first clause of this verse actually states, and we still built the walls. In other words, the mocking and the jeers had no effect on these builders once they had surrendered these things to God. They dumped it at God's feet and that was that. In spite of the mocking, they kept building. The people set their mind to working toward their vision rather than stewing over their opposition. They had to will to do this, beloved. They had to will to ignore their detractors. But when they did, their walls began to be joined in strength and unity, and their vision rose half its height. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Tharaka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.